Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Charles Onu. Charles is a PhD student at McGill University. Charles, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much, Sam. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's it's great to have you on the show. I had a chance to see your presentation on, uh, I think the project was called Ubenwa at uh, the NIPS Black and AI workshop, uh, and it was very well done. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure you'll tell us a lot more about that project. But before we do that, why don't you tell us how you got involved and interested in machine learning? Well, well that story is very intertwined with the project, uh, Ubenwa, that you just spoke about. All the better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, because indeed it was, it was in my bid to, to, um, to pursue that project that I got into machine learning and took a, what I say, side road from my original path okay uh, yeah so so I, I had my undergrad education in uh, electrical um, and computer engineering and and when I finished my undergrad I worked as a software engineer I what was during that time that uh, I was volunteering with an NGO um, called Enactus and then uh, eventually co-founded one called Fisher Foundation with some colleagues in Nigeria so I studied in Nigeria and and that was when we, during our work in the, in the local communities, we had projects across agriculture, healthcare, and a number of other domains. And you know, we came across the in, the huge challenge of birth asphyxia, uh, which is essentially when the baby does not breathe well um, right after birth. Mm-hmm. And it was such a huge cause of infant mortality in in our communities, and, and but also um, in many parts of the world, and particularly in developing. Uh, regions or resource poor settings so so it was uh you know it was in a bid to see what causes this problem how could we address it um i came across uh, uh research that you know first of all detailed that one of the big reasons why asphyxia is causing such huge casualties in developing countries so about one million babies die every year from asphyxia and another one million suffer severe lifelong disabilities like uh, like brain damage, intellectual uh, disability, cerebral palsy, and so on. Mm. And one of the reasons why the casualty was so high was because in most resource-poor settings, the uh, the means for for clinical diagnosis was too expensive, too resource-intensive, and was just not happening. Yeah, and so so the there was a need for something a more a low-cost way of being able to screen babies early enough for whether or not they are breathing well. Because when it's severe, it's easy to know, you know, the baby usually would not cry when it's not breathing at birth. But in many other cases, it's not as severe to cause the baby not to cry, but it's there and it's causing damage to the brain okay. through oxygen starvation. And so so the work we, we, we began to develop was based on clinical uh, research done by doctors in the 70s and 80s, way back. And, you know, they had looked at, at cries of, of infants suffering several pathologies and in particular asphyxia. They used their spectrograms uh, back in the days and they were able to notice that several characteristics of the cries, the fundamental frequencies and melodies and and very important frequency components of the cries were different in in general in the population of babies that had some of these pathologies Hmm. from those that were okay, were normal. 
And, and, and in particular, in the case of asphyxia, it's even more pronounced because um, breathing and speech are coordinated by the same region of the brain. And, okay. and within our vocal tract as well, the same set of organs are oscillating when a person is breathing and speaking. Hmm. And so the, the connection is so intertwined that if a baby is not breathing well, there is a manifestation in the frequency patterns in its cry. And so it was upon, you know, I'm giving you the long-winded story of how I came into machine learning. No, this and is it great. Upon, it was upon discovery of this that I, I first of all, to heard about pattern recognition as a discipline. Okay. And I began to study and take courses myself to learn more about it. And slowly began to, to, um, to you know, to start what has become Ubenwa as a project now. Oh, wow. And you recently published a paper on this that uh, won a Best Paper Award in the Machine Learning and Healthcare Workshop at NIPS. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, um, our paper won the Best Paper Award at NIPS in 2015, NIPS, actually. And at the last NIPS, we published a new one, which, uh, which was a follow-up to that paper in which we had moved from algorithm into an actual deployable device in the form of a smartphone application. Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. So maybe we can dive into that project and you can tell us a little bit about um, kind of a little in a little bit more detail how you approached it. You mentioned that the the research came out of the 70s and 80s. Is this the the research that identified these fundamental relationships or were you somehow able to borrow data from that research as well? Yeah, well, this research, first of all, you know, told us that it was there was something to be explored there, uh, because at the beginning, the last thing I would have thought of was to consider the infant cry as a useful signal right. for a diagnostic tool. And, and so it was really serendipitous, I'd say, to have stumbled upon one of these papers and to see that there was indeed a string of studies between the 70s and the 80s exploring this, um, exploring the, the use of you know, spectrograms to analyze the infant cries. And there was this winter afterwards in which nobody seemed to care again about, you know, what infant cry could be used for. And my mm -hmm. assumption was that, you know, at the time there was no, there were no concrete methods for transferring this knowledge or this hypothesis into useful applications as we now have today with machine learning being so well developed as a field now right. and several low cost technologies like mobile phones that was not conceivable at this at the time of the 70s. Mm. So, so my thoughts was, uh, well, that was why some of those studies did not scale forward. You know, when you first came across this paper and got the idea that, um, you know, this might be applicable to this problem, you know, you, you mentioned that you started taking a bunch of courses, but what was some of the first like concrete things that you did to try to uh, apply this, this knowledge that you came across? Yeah, well, one of the one of the first things I did was, uh, you know, I I had I had a doctor friend and we we had long conversations about it. You know, I tried to understand physiology of the infant of the infant um, breathing system from him and and first of all validate if this was something worth pursuing. And we were we together, you know, worked on the the early part of the work that that we eventually did. Mm -hmm. But the next challenge too was how do we find data to validate this hypothesis that the infant cry holds information about the presence or not of asphyxia. Right. 
um, as you know, machine learning is based on the ability to use data and learn from it and be able to generalize from that going forward. Uh, but as you probably know as well, in the medical space, acquiring data is can be an ex extremely resource-intensive process, both in terms of time to, to get approval to, to interact with actual patients or time it takes to, to, to um, or the amount of, of cost or funds it would require to, to conduct the whole uh, the study to acquire this data. And so one of the first things we, we sought was to find if someone had by some chance been collecting data of infants in the world. At the time, we only we were only interested in, say, if we, we only thought we'd find, you know, cries of babies that were normal. And, and if we're able to find that, at least, we thought that would be a good point to begin to start modeling the inherent characteristics of cry and, and to begin to phrase this as maybe an anomaly detection problem where we have a good model of what of what a good cry should be and we can and we can um, and we can say that any new example any new sample that doesn't fit this model is likely an anomaly that has to be checked you know that has to go for uh, further verification and you know I, I'm referring to babies here. And that could be a useful screening tool that, you know, um, first responders could use to transfer babies for tertiary care. Right. So so we so we searched and eventually we came across the, the database that we use for our work. It's called the Baby Shilanto database. And it's collected across a, a set of special specialist hospitals in Mexico. And, and this team of doctors, too, who had been tracking several pathologies in babies and they had collected um, the cries of babies in several states from normal states like from normal babies and in different states like um, hungry states, just a resting state and when receiving some measure of pain through maybe blood sampling and also they collected pathological states as well, asphyxia, uh, deafness and a number of other conditions. Okay. And so we, we, we reached out to them, you know, told them about the work we were trying to do and they gave us access to the subset of their data that had the normal baby's cries and the explicited baby's cries. Yeah, it was a fairly small data set, about um, 69 babies in total, uh, but over a thousand or so recordings. And that was what we used to develop the our first um, our first work that really showed that there was promising um, was promising signal in the cry that we could use to develop a, a possibly a, a tool for diagnosis. Yeah. How did you use that data to develop a, a model? What kind of model did you end up uh, pursuing and what was your general approach there? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. So so one of, one of the primary subdomain of machine learning that we looked to was that of automatic speech recognition. Um, as you can imagine, this is a, a very similar problem as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas ASR is trying to to take a speech and and take a, a person's speech and understand what the person is saying. In this case, we're not we're not trying to understand what the baby is saying, but right. what the baby's body is communicating to us. Mm -hmm. And so you can think that, you know, the, the uh, methods developed there will, will be useful. And so that was what we did. We we adopted, uh, you know, feature extraction methods like the use of male frequency septal coefficients, uh, MFCCs. So MFCCs are an ex extraction of... of um, of key frequency components in the speech signal, uh, and they've been used a lot in ASR because it's been it's been uses the methods of discrete Fourier transforms to extract these key components that really 
puts aside the things that are not as relevant, you know, the, the artifacts of speech that are not as relevant mm-hmm. and brings into, into the fore the most important components of it. Okay. And, and so MFCs have been used a lot in ASR and we use that for our speech recognition and um, speech extract, feature extraction um, path. And we use support vector machines at the classification phase and combine this with, you know, with uh, nonlinear kernels like the Gaussian kernels and so on. So, so, so that's, that's made the, the core of our, our system in general. So you had the, you had these thousand recordings, you passed them through some pre-processing steps that basically broke them down into frequency components and, and those yeah. became your features for your, your SVM. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And how, you know, beyond that initial kind of model, like, did you run into any challenges in in doing that? So, any challenges in in building the classifier? You mean from in the building point? the classifier? Yes. Yeah. Well, the good thing was, you know, we've we had this data that had been collected. Uh, it had been, you know, someone had someone else had gone through all the work of of getting clinical approval for it to to conduct the study, collected the data. Um, you know, filtered the data. Um, they they had you know annotated it by labels. You know which ones are are the pathological samples and healthy samples and so on. Uh, so 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 as you as you probably know, machine learning there's a lot of work that goes into that early part, which we were hope, fortunately saved from <laughs> engaging in. <laughs> Um, at least at that time. Uh-huh. Uh, so so we spend most of the time, you know, developing the classifiers and tuning and you know and searching the space of what's the best solution within this uh, range of parameters between the MFCC's extraction and the SVMs, um, hyperparameters. Uh, but, you know, ultimately we are, we, we are now somewhat back to that first stage because we're able to use that data to show the promise of this approach to show the, the feasibility of, of, of this method. But now we need to, one, validate it, you know, with data we collect ourselves. Mm-hmm. We need to... We need to Get a larger data set to improve the performance. So the performance of the system we have now is about um, 90% on specificity and sensitivity measures. That's in accuracy in detecting the um, babies, the asphyxiated babies, and that's sensitivity. And accuracy in detecting normal babies is our specificity. Mm-hmm. And and so you know the goal is to try to one robustly validate this this. Um, these results we have using samples acquired from a different geographical location, different population, and and hopefully acquire this more data to use it to improve the performance of the algorithm, and and begin to develop um, um, into into our software uh, very practical issues that would have to face in the real world, uh, like making sure it's robust to noise, um, and because these samples were recorded in very controlled environment without. Um, background noise mm-hmm. and and just several optimizations by you know uh, for instance in the presence of overlapping signals you know several babies crying at one can we right, separate right, them right. if I one um, can we optimize for the length of this the, the the audio signal that we require to make a a uh, useful a valid diagnosis and, and so on the number of such things we're looking at now okay and now one of the tools that will help you do all this is you were able to take the work that you did uh, initially and then build a, a mobile app around this. Mel, tell us a little bit about uh, that process and kind of what stage you are, you're in with uh, deploying this mobile app. Yeah. 
so, 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 you know, in terms of the development of the mobile app, one of the challenges is that a lot of a lot of machine learning, as you know, happens on on Python and MATLAB, mm-hmm. and and but those are not the languages that are used in mobile development, in, right? In general, <laughs> and, and so you know, but they, but they really help with experimentation and and uh, and and you know, the fast turnover of the scientific process, right? Uh, but thinking of deployment, you know, we had to start thinking about first of all, we had to decide upon what was the best mobile platform for a place like Nigeria where I lived when this, when, we, when we started this project. And Nigeria, Android phones are 90% or 95% of what people use. Um, so, so that was our go-to platform to start with. Uh, Android, at the time, at least was 2014 or thereabout. Um, the main platform for development, or the main language for Android development was Java. Uh, now there's been um, C-sharp uh, portals to it, and I think Python possibly now, yeah. But, but so, so the, the, one of the big challenges too was transferring our code to Java hmm. and maintaining efficiency, uh, maintaining performance as well, accuracy, and and you know just all of that thing. So, so it, it took quite a while. That was quite a bit of uh, a few weeks or maybe months we spent on on just that part of the work. Hmm. But we were able to do it ultimately. I and my colleague uh, Innocent, who is also a software engineer. We're able to completely move move our code and maintain performance, both in terms of time to diagnosis. We're able to maintain the the um, original classification performance on the data set as well when we put it in the mobile application. So, so, so that was that was one challenge we had to face, and it was good. And we also, as you mentioned, that we faced this challenge too because we wanted to put the classification model on the device. We, we did not want it to require internet to, to do classification because if we are trying to deploy in some of the poorest parts of the world, um, in Nigeria, that's also not so poor. The internet access is still very, very, um, very scanty in many places. And so if the device required internet to make a diagnosis, then purpose is, you know, halfway defeated already. And, and you know, we could go there in the long run, but in the immediate term, it, it, was, it, was, it was the most um, practical thing for our target groups. And so, so we went through that, and and we got it, we got it onto the mobile app. So where we are now is a question as well in terms of validating that mobile application, and that's uh, really a lot of what's taking our, it's what takes our most of our time presently. So in Montreal, at the McGill University Health Center, the, at the Children's Hospital here, we are doing the validation exercise, a, a, a one-year um, exercise with the doctors here, and the goal is to acquire more um, more samples from of babies who have experiencing different levels of asphyxia from mild to moderate to severe uh, acquire control samples of normal babies and then and then to use Ubenwa to to validate against so to, to to classify the samples essentially so these samples are going to be uh, this the cry samples of these babies are going to be evaluated via the clinical methods of diagnosis so their blood samples will be taken to be analyzed with a blood gas analyzer, and a doctor, especially this doctor, would clinically determine, you know, what to label um, these babies as, and then we're going to validate this against the Benoit, and and hopefully further develop the algorithm in that process. <clears throat> and the next stage after that would be to then take this to Nigeria and do field trials there. Um, our original plan was to do the, this stage in Nigeria. Um, and it's still not a shut down plan completely, but we faced many challenges with that. 
just because um, whereas the whole clinical process I just explained of blood gas analysis and so to confirm the presence of asphyxia, whereas it's a it's a routine procedure in in Montreal in Canada, in Nigeria it, it doesn't happen, which is the root of this problem in the first right, place. Right. Equipments do not exist in any of the public hospitals. There, there's no power. There's no electricity for the most part to so even use it if it was there. There's a whole workflow and process, um, and process you know requirement that should be in place, or that we would have to put in place if we were to try to do it there. And all of this would cost both time, money, effort, and you know, it it would be a, a huge deviation from the, the ultimate, the, the precise focus of the project. And so after much fourth and back, we decided that we'll do the first stage here and then move to do a field trials in Nigeria with, with the doctors we work with there as well. And now the it sounds like the samples you're collecting at McGill are there's a high level of uh care, you know, clinically in evaluating the samples. Are you also uh collecting them, you know, with like uh you know, more professional kinds of equipment or are you trying to collect the samples via the mobile app so that you can kind of match the conditions that you'll be collecting them uh, with in the field? Yeah, that, that was indeed a decision point for us, uh, whether to use the mobile apps, the mobile phones themselves uh, to acquire yeah. the data or to use specialized audio recorders. And ultimately, we went for special audio recorders just because. Of oh, really? Yeah, we did. We really want to maintain the one, the recording quality across the subjects across the samples. We want to be able to to track things like the sampling rates and and just you know exclude some of the um, some of the immediate um, will I say miscellaneous functions functionalities that come with the mobile phone. Also, you know we've had some we've had some slight issues with the ethics people. I don't know if this this probably uh, lands upon things I should I should not talk about as well. <laughs> But, but yeah, there's also some ethics issues with using the phone right away uh, for the acquisition. And um, hmm. and yeah, so we're going to be using uh, uh, digital audio recorders to, to pick this, the signals at this point. Okay. Yeah, I'll I'll take your word on it if it's something you can't talk about, but it's uh, you certainly piqued my curiosity. I, I mean, I can imagine in the U.S. we have laws like HIPAA that require a certain level of uh, standard of care with patient information i imagine there's that kind of thing going on yeah things things on that on that on that line okay yeah yeah i mean it's it's uh it can get complicated you've got these uh samples that you're capturing with specialized audio equipment uh how then do you address the issues that you mentioned previously you know kind of there, the transferable transferability of those samples to the samples that are collected, you know, via your mobile device, so your background noises, your overlapping. Like, are you, uh, you recreating these situations after the fact, or is that just reserved for a later stage of developing your model? Yeah, yeah. At the current stage, we are going to be uh, working on those optimizations more in a research setting. So we're going to simulate what noise would look like. Okay. We could go out, you know, the sample, one way which we could do the case of the noise is to record noise in, record actual noise signals in the environment we think the app will be used and take that and use that noise to, I wanted to, I wanted to say noisy our samples further, but 
that would be too much use of noise, but we'll use that to corrupt our samples essentially. And and then, you know, work more from the research. So our research team is going to be working more on, on the research side of how can we improve the algorithm and make it more robust to noise. And, and I guess a more practical test of whatever we develop would happen when we are able to to go through this phase of validation and begin to test on the fields in Nigeria. So we can put it down on, on the field and say and test it in, in reality. How many samples are you expecting to collect uh, in the current phase? Oh, you shouldn't have asked that. Now I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to disappoint you if you've if you've uh, heard about machine learning data. Well, we are collecting a, a total of a hundred samples. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, you yeah. know, it's interesting because I was I was uh, I think perhaps the precursor to that question was you know thinking about you know, whether this is something you uh, would also evaluate like a deep learning type of approach. And I figured maybe one of the, you know, the, the limitations would be the number of available samples um, and, and needing a much more efficient model. Yes, yes, that's 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 correct. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, getting medical data is really hard. Uh, I'm, right. I work on another uh, study at McGill, um, in which we are also collecting uh, cardiorespiratory signals of, of newborns. And over a period of since 2014, it's taken us from then to 2017, December, to collect a total of 230 newborn data. So, so we're, we're tracking um, you know, respiratory difficulties in the intensive care unit. And so the, the bottom line is, yeah, it's really uh, hard. It takes time to get you know, quality medical data and and but but that's that's also part of what um, um, turns us more towards classical machine learning and less away from um, automatic represent, representation methods like deep learning, uh, so that we can really have control over what features we extract and really make direct connections between um, between the features and the, the cause they have on the system and you know and with their predictability as well. On that note, are there, you know, you started with this um, understanding from the the prior research that the frequency components would have a, a, a big play a big role in uh, identifying the asphyxia samples in that kind of feature engineering process, feature identification process. Did you identify uh, any new features beyond what you found in the existing research? And, and in particular, was there anything that uh, you found that surprised you? I would say because there's, there's such a, a wide range of, um, of, of um, audio characteristics that, that was explored back then. But one, one, of the, one of the features that really stood out the most was the, the fundamental frequency of, of the cry. Okay. So the fundamental frequency... It's it's one of, was one of the most studied um, elements because it's like the very first thing that describes an audio sing- signal, even in music too. We, the fundamental frequency determines the key of a song, and so it more or less determines you know what the what the at what pace or at what pitch is this child crying at, and and that that would that would say it's been the most significant features consistently across our work and hmm. across the previous work that was done as well. Okay, so it's not some, you know, there's not some kind of mysterious thing that's happening, like some, you know, 
it's like just the the basic, you know, most fundamental thing that you would get out of yeah, this audio the, signal. Yeah, but the interesting um, question comes in in the in how it varies in the time across time. So the time varying nature of this signal, oh, and really? that's that's why it's not a simple problem that you could set a threshold upon and say, okay, every value above this. Right, right. So that's where that's really why machine learning was necessitated because it's the complex time varying nature of the signals and of these uh, characteristics that is just impossible to put down a rule that says you know a baby that has this, this, and this is going to be normal and otherwise for for asphyxiated. And now, how do you capture that time varying nature with the SVM? Yeah, so SVMs inherently are not uh, time time series classifiers. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've used a combination of, um, of several methods. So one of the things we did was use Gaussian kernels okay. for the SVMs, which, which primarily deal with scalar features. But well, we, we then segmented the samples into, um, into several time chunks and, and used the instances in time as if they were independent for training. But at test time, we test the, we test the instances Again, independently, but combine their results to to determine whether or not we've uh, the performance has worked. The performance of the system is doing well at this at the level of the subject now, not at the level of the independent time instances. And so that way, by guiding the search basically through our our parameters, by guiding the search with the ultimate performance on the subject, um, we can go to a better. Sp- hyperparameter space that really optimizes performance at the level of the subject based on the nature of each of these instances in time. Hmm. Yeah, can you give me an example maybe of how that uh how that works? Like what how does the the relationship between these samples uh give you, you know, allow the algorithm to, to key in on this time sensitive uh variation? Yes. Yeah, so, so you could look at it as um, imagine we recorded um, hypothetically that the length of the samples we have was 10 samples. So let's say it was one second at 10 hertz. OK, so that's 10 seconds, 10, 10 samples per second. Mm-hmm. So this is for one subject, for one infant. So what we do is, you know, we take each of this, the, the uh, feature, make the feature vector at each of these time instance. So, so to be clear again. At each of these 10 time instances, we have a feature vector of some length. The feature vector is determined by the, the number of characteristics we decide to extract from the, from the, the audio signals, you know, including the fundamental frequencies and many other um, um, characteristics from the MFC features. And so we take that feature vector of, say, some, some value, let's say it was three, and we take that feature, those feature vectors, we decorrelate them, first of all, for training, and, and the goal really is to find in the, in the um, high dimensional space, is there a space on which we can separate the instances from success samples from the time instances of failure samples? But when we do that training to try and separate them and find a good hyperplane in the high dimensional space, then on the evaluation point, we take, of course, a separate set of samples. So we don't use the same subjects we use in the training as, as the evaluation phase. In the evaluation phase, we take each of the instances, the 10 instances of a particular subject to be evaluated. We classify them based on the, the model that we are choosing to evaluate at this point. And, and ultimately, we, we then use um, another metric. So in our case, we, 
We've we explored both the use of just a simple majority count of the instances, but also we explored using another classifier, another support vector machine to be able to classify the predictions. So it's like a meta classifier to be able to classify the predictions of each of the 10 instances. So, so each of the predictions become their own features to the next classifier. And then we use that to predict, to make one final prediction for that subject. Hmm. And is yeah. that, yeah. Th is the meta classifier method more performant than a, a majority or some kind of quorum based system? Yeah, in our case, it performs slightly better than just doing a majority count. Uh, hmm. And that's partly because it's, it's able to, to take into account temporal dynamics now of, of this, of the, the original, um, instances in time. Mm -hmm. It's able to, it's able to, to find the, the relationship between, between these instances over time, pretty much, and okay. connect them with the ultimate outcome. And the example that you use was uh, 10 data points a second is is one second. Is that the you know, was that just a, for illustration or is it does one second uh, worth of uh, sample give you enough to identify this time varying indicator in the fundamental frequency of asphyxia? Uh, yeah. So one of the one of the things that we've done is. Um, we, we use longer segments, but we first of all break them down into one second segment. So it's also a way of, of dealing with the fact that we don't have so many subjects and we want to make sure that whatever we build is, um, it leaves room for, um, for uncertainty. And so what we do is we break down the samples into one second segments, uh, perform classification on each one second segment and then average the results to give a prediction for that subject. So there's several levels of breaking down, uh, including this. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, so we, 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 we are at the very lowest level, deal with the one second segments, and then we, 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 we average that or ensemble that at the higher level to make a prediction for each patient. So in, in practice too, in the test we did with the mobile application, what we do is we record lengths of 10 to 20 seconds, uh, and we break it down that way for the classification. So we split it. That also helps us to do parallel computations if the um, device supports it. And then we eventually combine the predictions. Yeah. And in terms of, um, you know, where you are currently, what kind of results are you seeing with the, with the method? Uh, so, so the, the, the paper we have published, uh, we obtained about, uh, Precisely 86% of sensitivity. So that was the detection rate of uh, infants who had asphyxia and 89% of uh, specificity. Uh, that was detection rate of infants who did not have asphyxia, who were healthy. And, the, and this is the, the one we published in, um, in 2015 uh, that won the Best Power Award at NIPS. At NIPS Machine Learning for Healthcare. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> And practically speaking, your your baseline is against, um, you know, in the field, it's against uh, an, an unaided doctor trying to identify asphyxia just based on uh, being presented with uh, uh, an infant that isn't responding normally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's what would would like to to change, and that's you know, that's not good enough to have the doctor just eyeball it. Right, right. Uh, but but it should be clear that there's a very clinical, there's a gold standard, you know, there's a gold standard which is used in in Canada and in many other parts of the world. And that's the blood and oxygen level. The blood, exactly, the blood gas analysis. Okay, 
Right. So they take this sample of the baby's blood through, um, usually through the cut umbilical cord, the arterial blood sample, and they analyze it for several parameters, bilirubin, um, acidosis, and electrolytes, and so on. And usually they combine this with the ABGA score of the infant. The ABGA score is a is a score assigned to literally, literally every baby who has been born for the last 40 years. And it's a physical assessment of how well the baby is doing on five measures. So that's combined with this blood gas analysis to make a confirmatory diagnosis of asphyxia. And that is... Is the blood gas analysis also um, something that is routinely performed or is it performed when there's, you know, a certain level of the of the score or... Uh, some indication of a problem? Well, in in Montreal and the rest of Canada, it's a routine uh, process for every baby that's born. And really, that's one of the things that makes it very convenient for us to do this study here. It's because we, we would not have to, as part of our study design, um, um, decide how we collect the gold standard. The gold standard is already a part of day-to-day clinical operations. We just have to read the charts to get that data. So yeah, it's routine here. Interesting. Um, and you mentioned that you're, you're working on another project, uh, there as well. And in addition to Benoit, what's that one? Uh, it's called the apex project, uh, apex as in a for APEX. Um, the, it stands for automated prediction of extubation readiness. Um, it has, I guess, one technical term, the extubation, uh, and basically that refers to the process of winning a child who is under respiratory support. Yeah, so, so, so usually infants who are born preterm, uh, premature, which is uh, usually around seven weeks or, or thereabouts, is, uh, are, are usually, their lungs are usually not well-developed or well-formed to support spontaneous breathing for them. And so they usually require respiratory support. And this happens in general through the insertion of a tube down their trachea and the the other end of the tube is connected to a ventilator, and this ventilator provides oxygen to the infant at a certain interval, you know, tunable by the the physicians. Uh, but but these physicians have to make a very critical choice under this setting, so they must decide when to remove the infant from this setup from 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 mechanical ventilation, as it's called, because the longer you leave the infant under that system. The increased chances of lung disease because you know you've placed a plastic tube right, in the throat right. in the trachea and that causes um, there's interactions with the walls of the of the of the trachea and so on and so so that usually causes something called BPD bronchopulmonary dysplasia which effectively is lung disease and that's bad because it's going to be a lifelong disability in most cases so but also you don't want to remove it too early so that's the case when you leave it too much too long. If you remove it too early, the infant may not be ready to breathe on its own. And what, what could happen is that the infant would require reintubation. So intubation is the process of putting the tube in, and extubation is the process of removing the tube. The infant could require reintubation, and, and reintubation is a technically difficult challenge for infants that have been intubated already because there's swelling in the trachea and so on. And in some cases, they never succeed, and the baby ends up having to die. And so, so there's this trade-off between how when is the optimal time to extubate an infant under intubation in the ICU. Can I ask the stupid question, which is, 
Can't they remove the oxygen source without removing the tube and see if it works? Well, that turns out to not be a stupid question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, for, for our study, that's indeed what we are tracking. Oh, okay. Uh, because one of the things the doctors do as, as you know, partly a way of evaluating how ready the baby is, is to disconnect the ventilator and let the child breathe through the tube first to just observe how well the infant does. The challenge with this is that, you know, while it's a good product, it's better than nothing, uh, it still has resulted to, um, so currently in North America, the, the failure rate for reintubation is about 25%. So the doctors get it wrong about 25% of the time. And really, that's the core of the, of the project. We're trying to fix that. We're trying to to save those 25% of babies who end up either being reintubated or who, who end up with long-term um, disabilities. Mm. So in a lot of ways, similar to the uh, asphyxia problem, you have doctors that don't have a, an effective way of clinically assessing whether the baby is able to, to breathe on its own. And so they they do, in fact, uh, disconnect the ventilator without taking the tube out, but they're just eyeballing whether the baby looks to be ready. And in yeah. 25% of the cases, they get it wrong, take the tube out, and only then find out it has to go back in. Exactly. Yeah. I know I say eyeballing, but, you know, the, the doctors have many medical devices connected to the baby, you know, right, monitors, right. respiratory monitors and so on. And, you know, they look at this data, look at the patterns and make it an informed decision. And, you know, that, that explains why they do still fairly well. 75% is not too bad, mm-hmm. but it could be better. And that's really the goal of the project to say, how can we take machine learning methods apply it to an automated analysis of the heart rate signals, respiratory signals that we get from these infants during that spontaneous breathing trial period. So during that time when the ventilator is turned off, because that's usually the true measure of how well the infant might do when they don't have that ventilator on. So so we, we take the signals at that point in time and we are building uh, primarily um, time series methods to analyze them and say, how can we make a prediction from this? Okay. Yeah. And what stage are you in with this project? The, we are at the stage where, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in December 2015, we, we reached um, we reached our target of 200 and I said 200. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We, but you know, that, was the, the, that was the target of the project anyways, to, to get to about, to, to, to get to 200 babies for our de- training and development and to get another 50 for validation. So those 50 will be left till the very end of the project. It's a five-year-long project. We left till the very end uh, before we, to evaluate whatever methods that we've developed on the other parts. So so we, we've, we've done quite a, a bunch of analysis on the data over the last year, but really much of it is, has been, much of the detailed work, I would say, I've been starting this year uh, since we, we, we now have the minimal data sets that we require. Yeah. We've written about a few a few um, works we've done on the data in terms of using Markov chain models to mod- to model the respiratory patterns and how they change over time. Yeah, we so we have a paper that we have published about this work um, last year at the Engineering in Medicine and Biology conference. Yeah. Okay, and what was the conclusion of that paper? Yeah, the, the paper was pretty interesting, uh, or at least the finding we based from the paper was, was pretty interesting. So in that case, what we did was we did not look at the raw signals of how the heart rate is changing or the respiratory rate in particular. We, we looked more at states. So so breathing in general 
goes through a number of states. Uh, there's five of them, roughly. Uh, there's synchronous breathing, which is when the breathing in the ribcage and abdomen are in, are in synchrony. It's very intuitive. Um, so they're happening at they are, the, the, the compression and, and expansion is happening at the same rate, pretty much, in both sides. There is a synchronous breathing when they are out of phase. That's, that's the second pattern. The third pattern is the pause state, when the infant experiences a cessation of breathing at some point. And there is the movement artifact phase, which is somewhat a phase induced by external factors. Either the infant is moving or it's been handled by nurses and so on. And then there is the, there is the, the last phase is, it's called an unknown state. Um, and that is just the ones that don't fit into any of the four defined patterns. And, and so the, the goal of this project was to see how we could use switching models like the Markov chain, which models um, the transitions uh, from one state to another, how we could take that and apply to this to learn more about what kind of transitions do infants who are ready for extubation go through and what kind of transitions do infants who are not ready for extubation go through and could this inform the classifiers we build in the future. And so it was a more of a modeling task um, using chain models. And do you think that the Markov chain model will play a big role in the approach you eventually take to um, create a diagnostic tool? Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, on one hand, it it um, it it emphasized some of the things that was known somewhat uh, within the clinical community. You know that, for instance, pause states are bad. Um, cessation of breathing is not good because that means you know there's no power to drive the lung activity. Uh, so it's it reinforcing of some things like that. But also we we observed some interesting trends in terms of the transitions from some of these phases to the others. Uh, that would eventually serve as features into the whatever classifiers we build in the near future. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you've been very gracious with your time and uh, we're running out of it. Um, so I'd love to dig more into this, but I think in lieu of that, we'll just make sure that we have a link to uh, to this second paper here. Um, but sure. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time. You're doing some really interesting work. Um, and I appreciated having the opportunity to learn about it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sam. It was a nice chatting with you as well. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Charles or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 112. And remember to submit your thoughts on AI in your life at twimlai.com slash myAI. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. <laughs>